An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people, from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists, to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, our guest is Howard Sherman, Executive Director at Data Giant MSCI, where he's responsible for MSCI's corporate governance practice, as well as serving as global head of ESG and climate product governance. Howard's been involved in corporate governance issues for 35 years, holding such important positions as CEO of Proxy Advisor ISS and of early sustainability data and ratings provider governance metric, which was ultimately sold to MSCI. He was a co-founder of both the International Corporate Governance Network and the Network for Sustainable Markets. In the interest of full disclosure, I was on the governance metrics board when Howard was there, and he was on my board when I ran the IRRC Institute. In my opinion, Howard is truly someone you should know. He doesn't always get the headlines, but for 35 years, his thoughts and opinions have helped determine the direction of ESG and of investing generally. Welcome, Howard. Thank you very much, John. Very kind introduction. I don't think I'm uh, worth <laughs> quite as much as you've stated, but I'll take it when I get it. But it's true, we've known each other for quite a long time now. Um, we go back many years, uh, many productive, interesting years. We met when you were with the New York City Controller's Office, and I was uh, at ISS. You were a client of ours. I have a lot of history with you, and I'm very glad uh, we can continue to relate. Howard, let me ask you, you're an American living in London. Yes. And as far as I know, you've never run large amounts of institutional capital, yeah. but the largest investing organizations in the world rely on the data and analytics you provide. It's a nexus of wonderful contradictions. I, I want to ask a general question first. And I know this sounds like a softball question, but I suspect if you whack it around enough, the softball explodes and the tightly wound strings inside lead to all sorts of interesting places. <clears throat> so here's the softball question. What's the role of data in investing? And here are some of the possible interesting strings you could follow or not as you wish. The state of data today, the explosion of unstructured data, machine learning, artificial intelligence, jurisdictional differences, how different investors use data. So you guys have a multi-billion dollar business selling data and analysis. What's the role of it? Well, data is a tool. It's a means to an end to understand a company, its risk reward profile, how it compares to peers, as well as macro trends. That's fundamental to everything we do in the investment world. But maybe to give you a better answer is, uh, since I've been at MSCI, which is now seven plus years, I have to say there's been a, a huge marked increase in access to our data 
That includes raw data, calculated scores, ratings, time series data. And it has to do with the fact that our, our clients are becoming more and more sophisticated as they move beyond reading a, say an ESG research report to really wanting to dig underneath the hood and understand what's driving the scores and the ratings. Technology has also played a huge role in being able to access and deliver more data to our clients. And by technology, cloud computing is making everything run much faster. Artificial intelligence, which we use not to replace analysts populating you know, information into our database, but we can use AI to find the right sources for them much faster than them, for example, going through 20 documents in the SEC Agro database. So it's, it's a very important way of becoming more efficient in our data entry process. And then visual, visualization tools are becoming more and more um, important in our offerings because it's awfully hard to get a sense of what the data is telling you unless you can take a step back and see the picture. And I have to say that data and access to data have become as important to our business as, as anything else I've seen at MSCI since I've been there. And, and that includes our index capabilities, our rating methodologies, coverage, our analytics and models, which are all core strengths of MSCI. But data and IT are becoming as critical, if not more. I've been a fiduciary for investment advisor for a trustee for over $100 billion in my career. And both you and I have seen data used in all sorts of ways. I always say that all investing is data, right? Ultimately, that's what you're doing. You may be implementing with capital, but you're applying the capital based on your data. Mm -hmm. and, but what I have found lately is that because there's so much unstructured data being structured into analysis, investors often take data as some type of absolutely accurate panacea to use your background and they forget to apply the art and assume it's all science, like some magical serum that can improve anything. And it, it, data usually can, but sometimes investors misuse the data or don't understand the assumptions behind the analyses that data firms provide. Can you tell us some of the ways investors misuse data? So our audience doesn't make the same mistake? Well, I think the, the easiest trap to fall into, if you will, is not understanding the context of the data and the context of what you're looking at. So within our, you know, the ESG and climate change business where I work, environmental and social factors that are material to a particular company are, are influenced by its industry, its sector. So water scarcity is a much more important business risk and core of the business for a beverage company than, say, a bank, right? And corporate governance is influenced, as you know, John, you know, mostly by location, where the company is domiciled, incorporated, or, or listed. I've met a number of well-meaning new entrants to the field who think of ESG as a monolithic thing without really understanding that First of all, environmental, social, and governance factors are quite different in their own right. But you really need to understand what is, what's material for the company you're assessing and, and make sure you're not focusing on a very minor issue that really is not going to make a material difference in the company's long-term risk-reward profile. 
Let's talk about ESG for a minute. First, how do you define ESG? Or perhaps more usefully, what are some of the major ways MSCI's clients define ESG? So first of all, there's different approaches to using ESG information in the investment decision-making process. So it all started with what you could call values-based investing or negative screening, trying to avoid companies that are in certain sectors because you personally or your organization just does not want to be associated with that particular line of business. Tobacco is a classic industry that's screened out of client portfolios. Still a very large active part of uh, the market and we support it with lots of different screening solutions. The other end of the spectrum, uh, something more recent is what's called impact investing, where clients want to make sure their money is being put to good use for some social purpose. And it's not necessarily that they're willing to give up returns, but the, the where the money is invested is just as important to them as getting a healthy return on their investment. But what's really been driving the business for many years is what's typically called ESG integration. And this isn't trying to avoid any particular industry. It's really trying to identify what's best in class within any given uh, sector or industry and, and using environmental, social, and governance factors to augment standard financial factors in uh, DCF and other valuation and risk models. And more recently, while climate change information is clearly part of ESG, it's their environmental factors, obviously. The, the need for climate data, just to understand what climate risks a particular company is facing or what the implied temperature rises, for example, for a portfolio, the data needs there are enormous, enormous. And modeling capabilities are also really serious. So we've now broken out climate as a separate product line, a separate track from ESG. They obviously complement one another, but climate alone is, is becoming hugely important. And uh, again, you know, huge demands for data and modeling capabilities. And when we talk about data, ESG data, it starts with raw data, which is what we collect directly ourselves. We then you know, have to normalize the data, which is a huge effort in itself. And a good example is ethnic and racial diversity data, which a lot of our asset owner, asset manager clients are asking us to deliver. We've started collecting the data, but the raw data is really tough to use. You know, if, if you want to compare you know, one company against another or a number of companies in the same sector or index because the, the reporting is not standardized other than the board level, different companies report about their entire workforce or senior managers versus junior managers. The classifications of racial and ethnic minorities are not the same for each company. So just being able to normalize the data is a huge part of, you know, what you need to do in the ESG data world. And then obviously on top of that, we deliver scores, ratings. Clients use it for assessing individual companies. They like being alerted when there's a significant change at any companies. So it en encompasses a lot when we talk about ESG data. It's not just one monolithic rating 
let's talk about that. Everyone in the field, from scientists to investors to NGOs to academics to skeptics to regulators, knows that ESG data is not comparable. It's rarely assured. It's sometimes not even fit for purpose. And everyone's trying to predict the futures. What should regulators require? There's a consultation underway at the SEC right now. What should firms like MSCI provide? What should the companies that investors invest in have to report on? But as investors, we don't have any choice. We have to deal with the ESG data as it is today to make investments today. We don't have the luxury of saying, well, we're not going to put together a portfolio until all this is worked out, until there's perfect, comparable, assured, relevant data at some future data note. How should investors think about that today? What are some good strategies? What you already talked about the need to understand context. How should we regard the plethora of different data sources, different data, different ratings in ESG today? Great questions. First of all, at the ESG ratings level, there are firms other than MSCI that publish ESG ratings, as you know. There's a chorus in the press and some in the industry that seem to be concerned that our there's not a high correlation amongst our ESG ratings. And why is that? And that's a problem. And why aren't you more like the credit rating agencies where there is a high correlation? The answer is that we have very different methodologies and we deliberately choose to emphasize different issues based on our own experience, based on our client feedback. So I think it's a canard, frankly, to expect that different ESG ratings providers are going to come up with the same answer for each company. That means you as an investor or a client, a user of our respective data and ratings should really understand what's behind um, the final rating. And that means understanding our data sourcing capabilities, our QA procedures, our application of AI. And frankly, if you're trying to deliver ESG ratings or climate data, SFDR solutions in scale, you've got to have good AI and technology behind it or else you just can't, you cannot do it at scale. You have to understand modeling capabilities because we're talking about, at least for us, some of our clients are the classic permanent investors, the largest asset owners, sovereign wealth funds, insurance companies, pension funds, and their risk models go out many years. And it's not a simple thing to try and model ESG data that far in the future. So just understanding the analytic capabilities of who you're working out is, I think, as important as understanding their their data capabilities. And I also think, and to me, it's a virtue of being at MSCI. It's it's not just us deciding what's important and you know how to enhance the methodology, but we're in a very valuable feedback loop with our clients on a regular basis. So they're sharing with us their own thinking, their own research, their own findings. We have formal annual consultations to make sure that we're not running too fast and or keeping up with our clients. So it's not a simple answer to the question, John, but I think all of these factors 
go into making sure that there's a, a good degree of trust between um, you, the client, and your data provider. It also argues for a good deal of knowledge about what your data provider is doing and what they're intending to do. As you point out, a credit rating agency only has one job. What's the possibility of a default right. event? You guys are trying to balance a whole host of different factors. Yep. So what's exciting to you today? What are you doing that's going to be the next big thing in your world? The next big thing in my world? Well, I have to say every day is a new thing in my world. The markets we're entering and our clients' needs are evolving so fast that I have to learn something new every day to be able to keep up and deliver credible solutions to our clients. But more specifically, what's really interesting, it's been happening the last couple of years. It's where I've been focusing my time and effort is we're now offering more and more ESG climate and sustainable financing solutions for issuers, their bankers, as well as private companies. And it's been a real sea change in the last, say, 10 years. So 10 years ago, a typical company that had an ESG rating from MSCI didn't want to be rated. It's like, don't bother me. I don't need this. I have enough to worry about. Today, there are requests every day from unrated public and private companies for an ESG rating because they've come to understand that it's material to their business, it's important to their investors, to their board. They want an ESG rating to help, say, promote a bond offering if they're active in the capital markets. So the whole transformation from ESG as an investment research tool to ESG as a financing and corporate strategy solution has been quite dramatic. And Mm -hmm. we're going to see a lot more growth in that area. And if you don't mind, because I thought you might ask something like this, I'm going to read a a brief quote from our CEO, Henry Fernandez, who was interviewed in the Financial Times just last week. But I think he puts it very well. I'll quote Henry. "Our, Our client base traditionally has been the providers of capital, the asset owners and the managers of capital, Whether it's active or passive, wealth managers and the intermediaries of capital, such as banks, brokers, and exchanges. What's happening right now with respect to climate at MSCI is that we've strategically decided to expand our client base to be the users of capital as it relates to ESG and climate. The users of capital, starting with public companies around the world and then private companies, why? Well, the the heavy lifting on solving the climate change problems of the world is going to be at the operating company level. So if we want to help solve this problem for the human race and, of course, have a good profit opportunity for MSCI, we need to expand our remit, our strategy, our client base to the users of capital, end quote from Henry. And I think that really does summarize what I'm not as articulate at saying, but the whole application of ESG and climate solutions is moving from a very niche investment strategy to mainstream capital allocation decisions and corporate strategy. And I think it's fantastic. I think it's good for all of us. I would agree it is fantastic and an opportunity and deals with the issue. It does beg the conflict of interest question. Right. But I have to ask you a inconvenient question. Are you consulting to issuers about how to get better ratings that you are then providing to investors. I don't think that's what you're doing, but I want to make it explicit 
as to how you are thinking about this. One of your competitors has famously been cited for that conflict, and I'd like to give you an opportunity to explain why this is different. That's a, that's a very fair question. We have a number of different ways of working with issuers. So first of all, if you are any entity, a corporation or fixed income issuer that's been rated by MSCI, you have access to the data we've collected about you. You can comment on it. It's all through a dedicated issuer communications portal. Through that portal, you can also access a copy of your MSCI ESG ratings report all free of charge. It's meant to be transparent. We also have on MSCI an industry materiality map where anybody in the public can put in a sector or industry and, and see what the environmental and social factors we deem to be material about that industry. And those are all, again, free of charge. But interested issuers want to know, all right, how do we compare to our peers, right? And that's where we start to provide a commercial solution. So we do offer subscriptions to MSCI ESG ratings to issuers who want to typically see how they compare to other peers within a single industry or a couple if they're a conglomerate. But when they start asking the next question, all right, I'm rated triple C, I'm not happy. How do I get to be a triple A company from MSCI? What do I need to change? That's where we say, we're very sorry. We're not in that business. We as a business just do not, period, provide advisory services to the issuers we rate. So what's been happening is there's clear market demand for that. Issuers who are generally interested in not just their ESG profile, but applying it intelligently throughout the, the business need good advice, right? So the big four, McKinsey's, Bain's, BCGs of the world, leading investment banks, they're all taking up the baton and offering different types of ESG and climate advice to their corporate clients. So they have access to our information to help prepare meaningful advice to their clients. So we won't do it directly, but there's clearly a big market for it. And it's becoming a big part of the you know advisory, corporate advisory space. So let's end with a series of quick questions. What are you reading right now? I'm reading Life is a Menu by Michelle Roux, who is uh, the founder of Le Gavroche, a very, very fancy French restaurant in London. It's a great memoir of how he advanced from a patissier in Paris to a three-star Michelin chef and really helped introduce you know, high-end French dining in London. And the restaurant's still around. It's run by his nephew, I think, now. But so it sounds like you like good restaurant meals. Give me one that you remember. What stands out to you and why does it stand out to your memory? My favorite restaurant has to be Da Giacomo in Milan. And I was recommended by concierge at a hotel when I was staying there a number of years ago. And I've never had a bad experience at Da Giacomo. It's, it's a perfect Italian trattoria. It's, it's upscale, but not too stuffy. And anything you order there... Um, it's mostly seafood is um, outstanding. So any meal at the Giacomo. Would so be once COVID's less of an issue, we assume you'll be back there from London to Milan. I hope so. What's uh, one fact or belief you wish everybody knew? Uh, about ESG, about myself? You get to be the philosopher king who says to the world, this is true. I think I'll revert to Albert Schweitzer, 
I, I hope I'm quoting him correctly, is success is not the key to happiness. Happiness is the key to success. And if you love what you're doing, you'll be successful. And he also said the key to happiness is good health and a poor memory, which sums up life in a very clever, funny way. That's great. <laughs> Thanks much, Howard. You've been listening to Outside In. John Lukumnik and our guest has been Howard Sherman of MSCI, one of the true professionals in the investment data world with three and a half decades of experience. And as you've all heard, a voice that makes podcasters like me very jealous. Howard, thanks so much. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening. Outside In is hosted by John Lukumnik and produced by Elizabeth Thompson for Spark Network. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you leave us a review, as well as on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and wherever else you get your favorite shows. To get more information about our show and to stay in the know about future episodes, sign up for our newsletter on sparknetwork.com. <laughs>